working. So each time that, that I go through one of these uh, uh, talks and sermons, um, you know, I was telling my wife, Emily, this morning that sometimes God gives me cataracts, meaning that I can't really see the message until almost like the last minute. And today was almost last minute, right? Uh, but for, for reasons that I think will make sense to you guys in a little while. So my hope is that you will walk out of here, walk out of here, walk out of your box today um, in Zoom and edified, comforted, but also thinking about, like Rebecca suggested, uh, maybe we need to approach things a little bit differently uh, as a church. And, you know, I love seeing the, the group come together to plant new things, to hike together. There's a togetherness component that we're going to talk about today as well. So let me pray us into this message and uh, let God do his work. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your love. Uh, we know that uh, through your son, he did pay it all. And we, can, we can't possibly ever repay that debt. There's no way, no interest, no uh, foreclosure, no nothing. We can never pay that, that debt back. And so help us to be free of the, the bondage of trying to uh, do stuff for you, God. And I pray that especially those of us who are grieving many, many things today, that our hearts will be comforted because we could see you without the cataracts and we could see you uh, open, open-hearted and open-armed, Lord. So we thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to share my uh, screen. So good to see all of you guys, and and hopefully, hoping this will be a an edifying time uh, for for you all. And so, what does God want us to do with our grief? Um, again, the the construct of this sermon was there almost the entire time, but in terms of putting it uh, together, you know. And I have to let you guys know, I'm, I'm a counseling psychologist. I specialize in grief and loss. And even then, talking about this stuff is very hard uh, because grief is very hard and loss is very hard. So uh, what I want to remind us is that uh, there's two things to understand with sermons. So my, my uh, uh, spiritual mentor, Don Netton, sort of reminds me all the time about, about this stuff. So what was God intending to tell the original hearers or audience of his word? And in this case, it was God and King David. And then what is the most godly and appropriate way to translate and apply that original message in our current times? And so one thing to think about is it's it's sort of like if you all have, I know we all miss watching movies in the theater, but a lot of times our friends want to know, hey, you know, uh, Jerry, what do you think about the movie? What do you think about uh, Godzilla versus Kong? And so we have to take what we see and interpret that for the person asking us uh, what, what we thought of the movie. And almost always we'll say, ah, oh, the movie was okay, or it could have been better, or it was awesome, right? And so in this case, we have the incredible privilege of seeing God interact with uh, a major player in the Bible and being able to see, like, maybe I can learn a lesson out of all this, or a lesson or two. And so I hope that we are able to, to see that, uh, especially in Psalm 142. Um, so the eyes have it. We want to pay, pay close attention to the eyes in the passage. There's plenty of times where uh, King David, which is the, what the, the passage is attributed to, uh, talks about his own suffering. So let's let's sort of, now that it's fresh in your mind, uh, thanks to Brother Darren, let's read it again. And I'll, I'll read out loud. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. And so this goes way beyond just praying for our dinner meal uh, in a little bit or our lunch meal. You know, thank you, God, for the food. This is really, I'm hurting uh, and I lift up my voice to you because I need mercy and I have a complaint for you, God, and I have a lot of trouble. And in, in some of our cases, it might be, you know, uh, my school has been set back for a year and a half. Uh, for some of us, it might be my job is uncertain. 
Um, you know, I will share with you guys, uh, my wife, Emily's being laid off next month uh, from one of her jobs. And so, uh, so we're staring loss right in the face. And so we, we've been crying out to God quite frequently. Um, and then verse three, when my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch my, over my way. So this is an acknowledgement from King David that God has provided for him in the past. We get sometimes amnesia when we're praying, like we forget the last time that God rescued us out of a situation. And uh, King David does a wonderful job of modeling, uh, you know, for us, like, I haven't forgotten you, God. I know you've always taken care of me. And yet at the, at the second part of the, the verse and the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Okay. So briefly, um, you know, for my, for my gamers in the room, you guys know what it's like, you know, when you're playing a game and I won't say what type of game, but, you know, as you walk down the path and then someone stuns you with like a, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe a hand grenade if that's your game, or maybe um, in Animal Crossing, it might be a random gift, right? They surprise you and shock you with the gift, right? So we know what it's like to, to have someone lie in wait and surprise us with negative stuff. And this is what exactly um, King David's talking about is, and if you study enough of King David, you know, so many enemies in his path, and sometimes he made these enemies on his own. So, um, so he's acknowledging that, uh, basically the path that I walk. And I imagine some of these Psalms he wrote while in a cave. And so think about that component, guys. He's not, not only able to not communicate with the outside world, but he's stuck in a cave and not able to escape because he really is in danger. And so in the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Okay. In verse four, look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. And so my comment, uh, congregation, brothers and sisters, is when we suffer, it often feels like we're the only one uh, doing it and no one cares for us, okay? Whether, um, you know, I'm, I imagine for my students on the call, uh, I must be the worst student in calculus class. I must be the only person that doesn't understand uh, European geography. I, I may not be the only person that that uh, is suffering from, you know, these psychology terms, but man, I, I just can't put it together. And so um, in our suffering, uh, we often feel like we are isolated and by ourselves. Okay. And then in verse five, I cry to you, Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Okay. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have uh, younger siblings, but um, you know, I have these adorable set of twin nieces. They're three years old. And uh, one of them loves uh, my wife, Emily. And then the other one is, is pretty much you know, adores me. And so each one always takes turns like running up and holding on to our legs for dear life. And so I, I think the, if y'all have, have had younger siblings that are not annoying you, you'll remember what it's like when they, the few times when they've been adorable and just, you know, clutching onto your leg or being super cute by giving you their food. And so um, I just want us to remember that we've had times in our life where, uh, you know, when we go to God, it's like we're the little kid saying, you know, we need you, God, and I'm going to hold on to your, your calves and your knees very tight, Lord. And he, oft, he often hugs us and comforts us. Okay. And then moving further on, um, you know, in verses six, listen to my cry, Lord. So here's sort of the meat potatoes of the passage. For I am desperate in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. I imagine for the, the 20 of us, we haven't had a lot of situations where we needed rescue, but for the few times that we have, whether it's AAA or mom and dad picking us up on the side of the road, um, that when they did rescue us, how grateful we are, but also 
how powerless we are to make any sort of change happen for us. Okay. Um, I've had by my count, uh, brothers and sisters, five surgeries and the last two, my wife has been here for, and each time when I've woken up, it's been comforting to see her face, you know, each time to know one selfishly, I didn't die, but two, that, that I have someone that's able to like comfort me and take me home afterwards. And so in this case, King David saying, I may be the King, but I, I'm in a place of need and I need you to rescue me, God. Okay. I wonder for us, how many of us are in that spot today? Uh, and you don't need to raise your hand. I know some people are very private, but I, I wonder how many of us are in the place where we desperately need God to, to bring us out of a, a deep hole that we're in, uh, either emotionally or financially or, or, or otherwise. And then to conclude the, pa the passage, set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. And we'll get into, the, you know, I know uh, Beatrice is studying counseling psychology and several other people are interested. Um, I have an interesting take on, on verse seven that may make sense for us because again, we've all been sheltering in place for well over 14 months now. And so um, we'll, we'll get back to this in a, in a little while. Okay. And so the things I want to keep in mind for, for us, King David was attributed to be a man after God's own heart. And yet we also know he was very flawed, very broken. A lot of times his mouth got him into trouble. His actions got him into trouble. And so in what ways does being a, a man after God's own heart helped him in this passage? And again, so kind of like a TV show, we'll come back to that after the, after the commercial break. Okay. Um, so it's important to remember, you know, one of the, one of the fanciest things that as I'll unshare for a second, one of the, the, the fancy things we do as counselors, uh, we're responsible for, for doing something called, called uh, creating a safe space for people to sit and process. And so all that means is that when I do group counseling Monday through Friday, um, whoever's in the room, and there's usually seven to 10 people, I wanna make sure all of them feel safe to be in the room, right? Same way that Sister Asolia makes sure that all the youth are feeling safe on the Zoom call Saturday nights. It's the same way uh, Uncle Jerry and Uncle and uh, Brother Howard and Uncle Jimmy make sure that the young adults are safe when you guys are gathering. But it's just, we, we, we psychologists like to make up these random terms, but when we provide a, a safe space, it's really so that each person feels okay to be there. They don't feel like they're in danger. And so um, one of the tragic things that's happened during this time is that essentially we've, we've lost the ability to gather safely in, in public spaces. And so we're grieving the loss of choice and direction. You know, after the very cool hike yesterday, um, if, you know, Sister Solia, you know, wanted to take, you know, take the fellowship out to go have seafood. You could do that before, right? But now you have to make reservations. And, and even in the past 10 months, you may not have been able to go and you'd have to get the food to go and get eat in the parking lot, which I'm sure all of us have done. And so we're grieving the loss of choice and direction in our lives, okay? Another thing to acknowledge is um, grieving the loss of security and safety. Um, for those of us who had had a path towards college or further into college, uh, we've essentially had a 12 month timeout, right? And we all remember what it's like when we were kids, when we were put on a five or 10 minute timeout, probably one of the worst things in the world. Okay. Um, I don't like taking timeouts myself. Okay. Cause it feels like I'm being punished, but, um, we really are grieving the loss of security and safety. Um, those of you who have parents who have been laid off, I, I understand it's, it's, it's very tough, you know, to know that there's a paycheck coming every two or four weeks and then that paycheck doesn't come anymore. And so you wonder what's going to happen to us or to me. 
Okay. Um, next, uh, we're grieving the loss, and this one's a tougher one because again, when we when we have relational loss and and trauma, um, the research supports that that we are hurt that much more. So if you guys remember the you know recent ten years, you know the movie Up. I got to meet th this actor, by the way, uh, Ed Asner online on one of one of a Zoom calls. He's a very nice gentleman, always tries to make everyone laugh. And so in the movie Up, he's missing the loss of his spouse in the movie. And then if you guys know Captain America in the Avengers, or I'm a huge event, uh, I'm a huge Marvel fan. So you know when when uh, after Infinity War, everyone's grieving the loss of half the universe. Uh, that you know I think even Captain America was saying like we've lost too many people. And granted, these are movie examples, but I, I wanted to sort of leave out the real life examples. Um, I will share, um, you know, that actually, I don't think brother, uh, brother Jerry, or brother Jimmy knew about this, but this is actually the 21 year anniversary of uh, losing my grandmother. So we actually pulled the plug at around 11:34 p.m. on April 17, 2000, and then she died uh, at about 2:41 on uh, the 18th. So it's it's rather ironic the timing of of God's timing with this stuff. And I, I still miss her a little bit of funny that she always liked to tell jokes in, in Cantonese, but her, her funniest thing was actually in English. Um, you know, she told me one day, she, she was like, Gary, you know, she says it in her, her Chinese look, Gary. And then she says the only English words I've ever heard her ever say. And she says, Gary, I don't care. Right. And so all of us were like, you know, I don't care. So she, <laughs> all of us were laughing in the living room because you know she didn't get why we were laughing not we, were, we weren't laughing at her but we were laughing with her because the only english words she ever said in her life were i don't care okay so um anyway i, I miss my grandmother dearly uh i i actually helped provide her last uh, meal which was chicken feet she wanted chicken feet before she died so um anyway so that's why the, a lot of this stuff is very personal and uh, near and dear to me and i'm sure we've had awesome experiences to uh, grandparents and uncles and aunties and friends that have uh, passed away. Um, so we have some grief problems here. And again, a lot of text, so I'll, I'll read it for you guys to make sense. Um, we potentially have too much pretentiously positive thinking. Okay. And this is coming from someone that does this for a living guys, uh, brothers and sisters. So uh, Oliver Berk Berkman wrote a book called the antidote happiness for people. We can't stand positive thinking. And the idea is that we can't positively think our way out of, I, I can't positively think my grandmother back. I can't positively, you know, uh, think about my, uh, think my four layoffs from tech jobs back. Okay, so there's no way to recover those things, right? And so here's a quote from uh, Berkman in his book, becoming numb to negative emotions, Renee Brown's research illustrates, doesn't even work as a way of protecting yourself from negative emotions themselves. So what Berkman is saying here, here is that we're allowed to have negative emotions. And so for reasons that the Catholic monk and writer Thomas Merton expressed in his autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, the truth that many people never understand, he wrote, is that the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer because smaller and more insignificant things begin to torture you in proportion to your fear of being hurt. Seen this way, it becomes clear that security chasing is a large part of the problem with the cult of optimism. Through positive thinking and related approaches, we all seek the safety and solid ground of certainty of knowing how the future will turn out, like kind of like a Marvel movie, of a time in the future when we'll be ceaselessly happy and never have to fear negative emotions again. But in chasing all of that, we close down the very faculties that permit the happiness that we crave. 
And so what he's saying is that security and happiness are really uh, two very different constructs for, for all of us to consider. And when we think about God, most of us are thinking, if we're honest with ourselves, security. Okay. And then when it comes to the happiness stuff, uh, and, and we'll get to this in a second, but it's, you know, uh, you know, for Sister Rebecca, God, make me happy at Irvine. Or, you know, Brother Jerry, help me to have, find a happy, a happy space for a vacation next year that's safely, you know, distance. And so we, we sometimes mesh together happiness and security when we know that our security as Christians is eternal. Uh, and anyone that's taught you, uh, you know, spiritually or, or scripturally that we are meant to be secure in this life, I'm kind of worried about them, right? Because I don't know if they get the message of uh, salvation really as best as they possibly can. And so the main thing is this part is that the more you try to avoid suffering, uh, the more you suffer. So the really gross example that I used in, in my groups is that, and for those of you who I can see, have ever, have you all ever tried to hold in a number one or number two for a long time? Anybody? Rebecca's nodding very glumly. Uh, Howard's raising his hand proudly, right? How do you feel holding it in? Anyone? Anyone? Let's say you had to hold it in for two hours during a movie. Let's just limit the descriptions at not good. Yeah, <laughs> not, not good, okay. I tried to make it through a Mission Impossible movie uh, to not using the restroom. By the time I went at the end, not good. I'll leave, I'll leave it with Rebecca's description. So, But let me ask the group, uh, those of you who have suffered, what do you feel right afterwards? Champion, right? You feel like a champion. You feel, yeah, pretty good. Okay, so you go from not good to pretty good. Very understated. But uh, I, I feel relief. I feel awesome. I feel like a human being again. Okay. And so if, if we try to avoid suffering, it ends up coming back to us that we will suffer because in, in uh, Thomas Merton's standpoint is that our fear of being hurt is so high that anytime we get touched or, or bothered that it does hurt us. Okay. And I think that's one thing to keep in mind for us as we think about grief. Okay. Ooh, this might be the uh, slide that gets me not invited back, Brother, brother Jimmy, but uh, grief problem number two. Okay, so I call it the Asian and well, Olive Bay Area academics work and life success thingamajig. Okay, um, let me be very upfront. You know, what I've been getting as a counselor is a lot of calls from, you know, parents from Lindbrook, from Palo Alto High, from Gunn High, from Los Gatos High. Just, you know, can you please fix my Rebecca? Can you please fix my Darren? Uh, you know, Jerry's struggling. Can you just help him get back to doing good grades? And keep in mind, like I advertise myself as someone that works with mental health, not, I'm not Kumon, I'm not academic achievement, right? And so do we, we have people that are around some of you guys' ages lamenting, why can't I keep up with my classmates and friends? And it's usually with grades. And then the parents are in this on the same couch are telling me, why can't they just get it? Why can't Rebecca just be more like like mommy and daddy and all the other students? So, so you have two sides that are, are grieving, like, I want what's best for my daughter or son. And then the daughter or son is like, can I just get mom and dad off my back? Because they, they're crying every time I'm crying, right? And so we have multiple sets of grief going on. Um, and I, I want us to be very honest about if, if we're suffering from this right now. Um, the younger person feels a loss of status, right? One of the kids I'm working with, you know, very afraid of, uh, you know, uh, being held back in his grade. 
because guess what that means, right? If we're honest with ourselves, I'm stuck with these lower grade, you know, uh, juniors in my senior class, or I'm, I'm stuck with these uh, freshmen in my sophomore classes next year, right? And so there's a loss of status and fewer coping mechanisms than uh, the people that they compare themselves to. So I have to correct this real quick. Um, so not only do I feel like I'm not as smart as, as Beatrice, but now I have to deal with my own stuff to where I feel like, man, I can't possibly ever compare to Beatrice or, you know, Uncle Jimmy or, you know, the next person. Okay. And then for our, the younger folks on the call, your parents are also grieving or your grandparents are also grieving because frankly, let's be honest, the loss of status. Okay. Many of us old people like to brag. Yeah. I know Rebecca, she's a scholar at UCI, or I know, you know, I, I know Beatrice, she's going to do an internship at uh, LinkedIn doing counseling, you know? So, um, so that we like to sort of use you guys as sort of our prop ups, right? And say, do you know, Darren, he got a basketball scholarship at UC Davis. That's awesome, right? And so there's a loss of implied status there. And again, fewer coping mechanisms to weather and support your children's weathering of these struggles, okay? And we forget for the older people on the call, how much we've struggled with just to get to this point. And sometimes we do get intentional amnesia. And so, especially for this slide, one thing I wanted to point was, you know, I asked my wife, Emily, like, what, what do you think about all this? And so my conclusion was parents grieve more because of what they had in mind for their kids' futures. And again, we're comparing grief and loss, but what she said was they, our kids are declining in value to themselves and others because they can't keep up. So as their grades decline, they have no self-worth and start to loathe themselves. Loathe is basically just dislike themselves a lot or hate life in general. So we have this ugly feedback loop that you have everyone in the family grieving even the kid that might be doing well is grieving because they, you know, they don't know what else to do. And so, uh, so it, that, that is sort of the second big problem that I see uh, here. Believe it or not, there is a solution, uh, brothers and sisters. So I wanted to sort of, before we get back to King David, um, you know, there's a series that Arthur Brooks is doing on the Atlantic on happiness, how to find happiness. And so what, what he says here a couple weeks ago was in our go-go world, where professional success is valorized above all else and workism has become like a religion to many. And, you know, for us adults, what is the first thing we ask when we get together? Where do you work at? Right. And the moment I say I work at a hospital, people are like, oh, okay, on to the next topic. Right. But if I say I work at uh, LinkedIn as a senior developer, uh, people, oh, that's cool. Like, what do you do? Hardware or software? And um, so our, our, our Silicon Valley workism has been a religion to, to a lot of people and maybe sometimes us, it can be easy to surround ourselves with uh, what he calls deal friends. And what I wanna point out, there, there's real friends and deal friends. And so a deal friend looks something like, okay, I'm gonna be Howard's friend if he helps me with my paperwork and then I help Howard with his housework. Do you guys see how that works? So we're only friends because there's a deal there, okay? Um, or brother, you know, brother Jimmy uh, will be my deal friend if I come in and teach his kids basketball. Um, and then brother Jimmy helps my wife with her accounting. So, so what it creates is sort of these using possible relationships. And one, it's when does it not become fair in these sort of deal friendships? Anyone want to tell me? When does it become not fair? The deal is not a good deal. The deal is not good in the first place, right? But 
conversely, what if someone can't hold up their part of the deal? Okay. What if I can't come over to Brother Howard's place every time to help out? What if Brother Jimmy can't come through and help out my wife? At least he's too busy with his family, right? And so that this is what, you know, what I'm sort of hinting at is if we don't have friendships that, and of course we will have deal friendships. I have a, a friend that always helps me with tech, tech purchases, right? And we're good friends. We play games together, but he always helps me with tech purchases. And so, but our, our friendship's solid over 20 years. But what, um, what this author, Arthur Brooks is saying is that we actually need genuine friends, Christians and followers of other uh, faiths place this deep knowing at the heart of their relationship with God and it is central to achieving change in therapy. So what, oh, I skipped something. So in, in so doing, we can lose sight of the most basic of human needs to know others deeply and to be deeply known by them. All of us to, to a person wanna be known and we want other people to know us and we wanna know other people. One of the great paradoxes of love is that our most transcendental need is for people who in a worldly sense, we do not need at all. If you are lucky and work towards deepening your relationships, you'll soon find that you have a real friend or two to whom you can pay the highest compliment. I don't need you, but I simply love you, friend. Okay. Um, how many of us have on this call, you don't have to raise your hands, but I wonder if we have at least one person. Do we all have at least one person that we would consider a real friend like this? And I hope for the older adults, we do, we need them because we, we have more people you know, leaving our lives as we get older. And so if we have one, then at least we know when, when stuff is difficult, we can call them anytime, right? I have three or four friends that I can call at 4 a.m. and they'll know why, it's, why I'm calling and they'll help me out, okay? And so that's my, my hope for you guys as well, okay? So that's solution number one. And related to that, this is 1B. A lot of reading, but I'll, I'll just sort of summarize the point. You can be comfortable in wealth, awkward topic, right? Uh, talking about grief and be happy. And so what he talks about here is friends and family are two ingredients in well-being. And uh, he suggests that if we have money, then you guys do go on cruises or, you know, fun trips or missions, you know, not that all missions is fun, but like doing stuff together as, as church members. And so fun experiences with these people gives us sweet memories we can enjoy for the rest of our lives, unlike the designer shoes that will wear out or go out of style. And then sort of this part is uh, for those of you who are working, left to our urges and natural desires, we can get stuck in a cycle of dissatisfaction. How many big houses do we really need? How many Teslas do we really need? And so in which we work, earn, buy, and hope to finally get happier. But we don't have to play that game. Anyone who acquires money can use it to buy some happiness and do a little self-improvement in the process. And so he lists out two or three things to close in this uh, for his argument. If we don't have as much, we can spend any extra cash on removing some of the stressors in our daily lives, right? So some of my families that I work with uh, congregation, when I suggest that they can hire someone to clean their house once every, you know, twice a month for less than $200, they're like, oh, sign me up. Can you, can you point me to the right direction, right? So even for 200 bucks a month, and if they have like five kids, hey, you can just send the kids to the park and the parents can go do a picnic and you have someone cleaning up your house and, and taking care of business. So that's what he's talking about here. On the other hand, when we have enough to meet our basic needs, we can fight our materialistic impulses and spend time enjoying the people around us. So, you know, I can't wait till uh, to see seeing you guys in person and, you know, doing our church luncheon and, and all those sort of things. Um, and until then, in the meantime, your time with family is going to be more precious coming up. And then lastly, if we are lucky enough to have extra income, 
we can make that into a source of happiness by transforming it into a means to share and to love others better. Okay. I guarantee there will be people in your congregation uh, at Fourth Home that will be jobless, will be laid off for a time. You know, hopefully they will have enough saved up. But if you have enough to help other families or other, you know, uh, uh, youth group kids, by all means, please do it. Right. There is a scientific basis. Uh, we do get uh, chemical feeding by doing that, by the way. And so we, we get to feel better about the world and ourselves and we can help others. Solution number two, this goes back to what I said earlier, brothers and sisters. Uh, I, as a counselor, am responsible for providing a safe space for people to sit and to be okay with their suffering and to cry and be okay with that. Um, so while we focus on his healing and discipleship, uh, Jesus's, we often forget his emotional response to our suffering, both he and God. So grief is a necessary God-given response to suffering and pain. Just a brief flyover of the term grief and, and uh, tears in scripture. Genesis 27, 38, Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father, because he had made some decisions to cause himself to not get the blessing. Then Esau wept aloud. In Judges, when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, basically judgment was coming. The people wept aloud. 1 Samuel 30, 30 verse 4, so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. I wonder how many of us, brothers and sisters, have cried ourselves to sleep during this COVID time. Uh, I imagine it's a lot of us, okay. Um, Job uh, 30, have I not wept for those in trouble? So Job is suffering and he's questioning his own very existence. Has, has not my soul grieved for the poor? Have I not done enough, God? And then in John eleven thirty five, 35, the ultimate example, Jesus wept, okay. Um, and then in terms of tears, this next, uh, uh, don't worry, we're getting back to King David in a second, but when we think about tears, uh, Job 16, 20, my intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. Psalm 6, I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Psalm 126, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. That's a very common uh, psalm that's, that's uh, cited by people. Lamentations 1, this is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. I want to let you guys know, congregation, there is a science behind tears. And if you've cried uh, in, in emotional pain, believe it or not, there, there is a chemical produced in the tears that when, when outpoured out of our eyes actually helps comfort us. Uh, so it's okay to cry. I'm letting you know. Acts 20, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Second Timothy, recalling your tears, I long to see you again so that I may be filled with joy. So we have ample evidence, uh, congregation, that, that there is crying and tearing in, in the Bible. And if anyone's told you differently, and oftentimes they don't tell you like not to cry, but what they'll often do is distract you from the crying by saying, you know, Howard, it'll be okay in heaven. Or, you know, Beatrice, our, our membership is in heaven, don't cry. You know, or, or um, Sarah, you'll be fine. Uh, you know, your, your deceased family members in heaven, which is one of the worst things to say to someone that's grieving, by the way. Um, if we're suffering, we earn the right to suffer because we miss those people uh, the rest of our lives, okay? Um, so home stretch uh, congregation, getting back to King David. Okay, here's where I think may make the most sense for us to think about grief as Christians. So six and seven, listen to my cry for I'm in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me for they are too strong for me. 
And so we need to acknowledge my or our weaknesses and needs, okay? Just because you are the lead systems analyst for uh, Sun Microsystems does not mean you can't have times where you're weak. Just because you are the 4.29 student in your high school doesn't mean that there won't be times where you need God's help, okay? If anything, uh, what, what we learn in my field of study is that when we are doing super well, that is the time where we are needing to go to God the most because we can forget about him in our pride. And then last part in verse seven, set me free from my prison that I may praise your name and the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Okay. There's, I think more than two ways, but the two main ways to look at verse seven. Okay. So read this along with me, set me free right side arrow so that I can go out and praise your name. Not bad, right? Not bad. Let's try it this way though. Set me free from the prison of my own making, which is my endless, this is Gary talking, my endless pursuit of achievement, wealth, perfection, adulation, 100,000% uh, respect, and never a, a tough client in my practice so that I may praise your name freely and without guilt or shame. Okay, so again, without the commentary, set me free from the prison of my own making, which could be achievement, wealth, and perfection, or others, so that I may praise your name freely and without guilt or shame. I like the second part, right? Because what, what this implies is that, sure, God can roll away the boulder at the, at the front of the cave, and I can go out and praise his name, which is certainly an option. But this part, because we have stuff we struggle with mentally and spiritually, and we're all tired from COVID, and we've been locked in place for 14 months, that really it's been perhaps a prison or a jail sentence of our own making. And so my, my hope is that when God does free us after we go to him in, in prayer and, uh, and crying, that we'll be free of, even just for, for the time being, our negative thoughts and our negative uh, assumption about the outcomes for our near future. Okay. Right. So here's sort of something to leave with you guys. Um, these can be true. And again, we, we live in such a weird society now, guys, where, um, you know, you can be super tough and you don't need a break. No, you can be resilient and you can, and you can need a break. Okay. Especially for the students. I, I like what brother uh, Jerry said earlier, like sometimes you need your spring break to go skiing or to get away from this part of California to do hiking and, and all that good stuff. Or sometimes you need just to need to have a good uh, cra crab broil or crawfish broil. Okay. Um, second, you give, you gave your all and yet you still need to back out of your possible work situation or school situation. You're independent and yet you still need others. I struggle with that every day, congregation. I, I think I'm a powerful guy. And then uh, in reality, I need my wife more and more th than ever at this point. Um, you are sure and yet things have changed, right? Um, you know, uh, Rebecca's uh, housing situation, uh, Beatrice's, uh, you know, uh, school and housing situation. Those of us who are going into the next grade, not sure who's going to be in our classes because of you know, hybrid learning situations. So you were sure that you were gonna get through high school in four years and now it's like stuff has changed. Um, you are kind and yet you can still have boundaries, okay? So if at some point, if brother Jimmy or Uncle Jimmy or brother Jerry or brother Howard says, we like you Gary as a guy, but we don't need you back. That can be the boundary, okay? That, that's, that's okay to do. And then last two, others have had it worse. Many of us have not suffered the stuff that nurses and frontline workers have suffered. Um, you know, I had a coworker at the jails previously that lost three family members to COVID. I don't know how to compete with that. And I'm not supposed to compete with that. 
and yet your pain is valid. So you can have room in your heart to care for someone else and that your, your own pain is very valid. That's why we need friends to go to. And then last but not least, you did your best and now you know more. And what that implies is that you did your best and you may not have gotten the right grade or the right outcome or the right situation, the relationship didn't work out. And yet you now you know more about yourself to help yourself for the future. And so I, I want us thinking particularly back to this part. Okay, God, please rescue me from the prison of my own making so that I may praise your name freely and without guilt or shame. And so when you hear uh, someone like Sister Rebecca, you know, leading in worship, you know, I'd like to think judgmentally or subjectively she's worshiping without fear or shame. And yet, you know, I kept my mute, I, I kept my mute on because I don't want you guys to hear my voice, right? So this is your, this is your speaker here saying, you know, I'm not even sure my voice comes out correctly half the time. And so my, my hope is that you guys will look at, at what you are grieving at and God sees it, um, you see it. And therefore that's all that matters at this point is that you grieve properly and you cry out to God because it, it's scientifically and spiritually and emotionally okay to do so. And then when it's time, you praise God and the people will come to you, which is usually friends and family, um, you know, because you want to praise his name. So that, that is my hope and wish for, for you as a congregation, that, that the 20 of you or the 19 of you uh, will feel galvanized to, um, to grieve. Uh, it's been a heavy 14 months. And so I, I pray that this would have helped you move maybe further down the path towards running into God's arms. Uh, and so, again, that is my hope. And let, let me pray for us as we close. Uh, God, thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for uh, allowing us a, a really really a, a genius method to grieve that when we cry, we get comforted in more ways than one chemically and relationally. Uh, so I hope that we would rediscover that gifting you've given us that when we have suffered, we know that we can approach you honestly and openly and you never turn us away, God. And so we thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Gary, giving 